Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. Good morning once again. Today we'll be continuing our study in the book of Philippians. And we are reminded by last week's text that God is able to advance his gospel in ways that we would never imagine to be possible. Whether through imprisonment, through the accurate proclamation of his word done under pretense or truth, or by the life or death of his faithful followers, God can use any of these things to exalt his great name and advance his kingdom. And last week we saw that Paul's greatest desire was not to be set free from prison or persecution, but that he would continue to exalt the name of Christ even under the trying circumstances that he was facing. He was worried that if he had to face these things alone, that he might lose courage. And through his words or actions, that he might put Christ to shame. Knowing that he didn't have the strength within himself to be able to accomplish his heart's desire, he asked God for the provision of the Holy Spirit And he asked his brothers and sisters in Philippi to pray for him. He says, Please pray that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And with his mind fixed on the greatest desire of his heart, he writes this simple yet powerful confession. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And what a place to get to no longer being tossed back and forth by each new wave that you think will bring purpose, no longer living your life in fear of death, but being able to say with all confidence, come what may, because for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. Once again, Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. It reads, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. And what we're seeing here is something that we're going to see time and time again in the book of Philippians. Paul is offering up his own life as an example of what it looks like to follow after Christ. As he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And the example that he provides for us is both beautiful and convicting. As he lets his friends in behind the curtain of his life, into the depths of his hearts and his longings, we are clearly able to see that Paul's life, after his encounter with the living Christ, was lived out with one single-minded purpose, to exalt the name of Jesus. He reveals this truth through his readers by inviting them to relive his inner debate as to which path, life, or death will be the one that exalts Christ more. 
in verse 21, he clearly lays out which one is more beneficial to him. That's a no-brainer. To die is gain. If I leave this world behind, then I gain Christ. And that is very much better. But that's what I want. And that's what would better my life. What does God want from me? And what is it that would better his cause rather than my own? If I die, I gain Christ. But what is it that I can do if I keep on living? Well, I know that to live is Christ. That's obvious, and that's not the answer I'm after. I really need to know whether or not Christ still has work for me to do while I'm here on earth. Because as a bondservant of Christ, my life and my death will be done at my master's bidding, not my own. Dying is definitely a gain, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. This isn't necessarily the option that I would choose, but I stopped making my own choices a long time ago. Yeah, I think I arrived at my answer. To remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And Paul's wrestling match with himself is all about submitting himself to God's will. He'd rather leave this sinful world behind and be with Christ. But even though that's what he desires, he's both willing and content to do whatever God would have him to do. And what we see here from Paul is so backwards of what we see in the world around us, and sadly backwards of what we often see in the church as well. While the world is screaming out, I'm living for myself, and my death will be a loss, we have here a faithful follower of Christ echoing the exact opposite. No, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And as we study these words this morning, we need to make sure that we don't let our minds gloss over them because of familiarity. As Matt Chandler said in his book, To Live as Christ, To Die as Gain, Philippians is filled with what we might call coffee cup verses. Passages of scripture that have so stirred the hearts and minds of believers over the years that we've thrown them on coffee cups, t-shirts, and bumper stickers. And while there's nothing inherently wrong with your morning coffee, declaring that to live is Christ and to die is gain, we need to make sure that our lives are declaring this same truth, not just our apparel. And this morning, as we study our text here in Philippians, to help each of us evaluate where we're at, we'll be looking at Paul's example and then question if that same truth is true of us on an individual and a corporate level. So, is your life lived for Christ. Can you confidently say with Paul that to live is Christ? This doesn't mean that you're living your life and when you have time you just squeeze Christ into the gaps. Well, let's see. I got nothing going on every other Tuesday and historically I'm pretty bored that day. So yeah, I'll, I'll pencil Christ in then. No, what that's called is living for yourself. If you've inserted Christ into your life in the same manner that you would attempt to slot in a game of golf, then you have taken the wrong approach. And imagine with me for just a second, just imagine, that you somehow happen to be on the same golf course as Rory McIlroy, currently the best golfer in the world. Imagine further you strike up a conversation with him, and amongst the small talk, you slip in that your life is lived for golf. Naturally, he'd be intrigued as to how much you hit the greens. Now envision what the look on his face would look like 
if your answer to the qu- that question was, you maybe get out once a week if time allows it. He'd most likely laugh and then walk away because to him, a professional golfer, he's actually living his life to golf. And to help prove this point, on GolfDigest.com, Roger Schiffman wrote an article entitled, How to Practice Like a Pro. And in his opening lines, this is what he says. When you go to a tour event on a Monday or Tuesday, like at this week's Cadillac Championship at Doral, you'll see what real practice is all about. We're not talking about a quick warm-up before a round. We're talking about truly working on your game as if it's the most important thing in the world. In a day, the average tour pro spends three to four hours concentrating on the full swing and an equal amount of time on the short game. But tour pros are not just beating balls or blindly rolling putts. They make their practice productive by using props, shafts, yardsticks, and other devices to check their alignment, their ball position, their swing plane, their putting path. Sometimes it's with their teacher. Most often it's with their caddy. So they have another set of eyes to check them. This is work. It's what they do for a living. And if done correctly... It pays dividends. And now I can assure you, my intent is to not waste our time here this morning talking about golf. My intent is to help each of us see that we would not accept something as truth when there's such a massive disparity between one's words and their actions. We get that the dude that goes golfing five times a year is not living his life to golf. Yet somehow we so often miss that this same exact principle is true for spiritual matters as well. And we don't counter this discrepancy by just merely throwing in religious quantity. Well, fine then. If you're saying I need to be at church more, I'll show up here every day of the week. That'll level things out. No, that would be missing the mark. Don't schedule your life as a never-ending list of things you're doing for Christ. But go out and do life with Christ inserted at the very center of it. And there's a huge difference between these two approaches. Consider the narrative of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10 verses 38 through 42. Once again, Luke chapter 10 verses 38 through 42. Now as they were traveling along, He, Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. And friends, we need to follow the example of Mary. Live our life at the feet of Jesus, listen into his every word, and follow him as he leads. This is the good part, and it won't be taken away from us. And being able to boldly proclaim that to live is Christ should be the mark that we're all aiming for. But how do we get there or... Better yet, how do we know if we're there? Well, when you look at your life from a zoomed-out view or a close-up view, what is it that you see? In the big picture, what is it that motivates you or gets you excited? What is it that you lay in bed at night wishing you had more of? What is it that you hope to grasp, anticipating that it will complete your life? Man, if I only had some more money, then I'd be good. I just need some more free time. 
need a better job. I need a bigger house. need better friends. need to have that child I always imagined I'd have. I need more opportunities to use my gifts. I need my voice to be heard. I need a bigger ministry. I need this, and I need that. And what about the close-up view? Each of us have different routines, activities, and responsibilities that we're attending to, but at the core of all of these things, what is it that motivates us? Whether it's your job, your parenting, your homeschooling, your ministry, or your free time, what are your goals and your motivations behind these things? Are you just looking to get them over with as soon as possible so you can have more leisure? Do you want to be the best at what you do or have the smartest children in order to get praise from others? Do you want your ministry to flourish so you can feel good about yourself and hold it over the heads of the organization down the road? Or, or church, do we have a bigger purpose a better purpose that we are living for? And the answer is laid out for us right here in Philippians. Excuse me. We need to lay aside all of those other things and live for Christ. Not live for ourselves or for our bank accounts, for our children, for our wants and dreams. Live for Christ. Live to exalt his name. Live a life that is dedicated to going wherever he sends you and one that is defined by fruitful labor for the king. To live is Christ. He has laid a hold of you for this purpose, so go and live it out. And there's so much depth behind the reality of those four little words. To live is Christ. And as we move on to the next four words, the challenge becomes even greater. For Paul, he not only viewed his life to be lived for Christ, but he also believed with every fiber of his being that to die is gain. And this, does this describe us? Is this the flag that we have raised over our lives? To die is gain. If you somehow knew that tomorrow would be your last day here on earth, would you look to it with eager anticipation or with weeping and despair? And friends, if we're struggling to answer whether or not our life was lived for Christ, we're most likely really going to struggle asking ourselves if we view our death as a gain. As Matthew Henry states, death is a great loss to a carnal, worldly man, for he loses all his comforts and all his hopes. But to a good Christian, it is a gain, for it is the end of all his weaknesses and misery and the perfection of his comforts and accomplishments of his hopes. It delivers him from all the evils of life and brings him to the possession of the chief good. And if we have determined that something is not worth living for, then it would make no sense that we would claim it is worth dying for. It's not often you see a devout Muslim taking up arms and laying his life down for someone that he would define as a Christian. Granted, There is a rare instance where one lives almost his entire life one way and then attempts to make up for lost ground by sacrificing it with one grand gesture. But that's not what we see here. Paul's not jumping in front of a train to somehow prove that he's willing to die for Christ and that he believes that his death will be a gain. No, he's saying that if the choice was completely up to him, rather than continuing on with life on earth, he would choose to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. 
And church, the question we need to be asking ourselves is how do we get here? How do I get to the place in my Christian walk where I can boldly proclaim this same thing is true of me? And the answer that we get from Scripture is not going to be a five-step program. There won't be any seminars, lectures, or slideshows. The only thing that there's going to be is the person of Jesus Christ. As we press in deeper to God's word, as we draw closer to Christ, as we live our lives completely sold out for him, he will bring us to the place where all we want is more of him. He will lead us to proclaim with Paul that our death will be a gain. It will be a gain because we finally get to see our Savior face to face. Sin and corruption will no longer stand in the way, and we can just be with Christ. And friends, there is no secret code that you need to unlock to get to this point in your spiritual walk. Just follow after Christ. This is what fueled Paul to live such a crazy emboldened life for Christ. He wasn't finding the strength to endure these difficult situations within himself, but from his Savior. Remember that he's the one in jail, and he's the one writing this letter of encouragement to those who are on the outside. And he understands that from a human perspective, this makes zero sense. So he makes sure to let his friends know where his source of strength comes from. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, he says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And oftentimes, when we see an example like that of Paul or someone else in our lives, We're tempted to make excuses as to why we're unable to live up to the status of these super-Christians as we would label them. Excuse me. But the truth is, there are no subcategories of Christians. You're either in Christ or you're not. And as we look to the lives of some believers and wonder why they stand in such stark contrast to many other believers or even ourselves, we frequently make excuses or justify why they are the way they are, and why we can't attain to their level. And the truth is that if you've heard the gospel message and understand the gospel message, then the only thing that's holding you back is you. Jesus Christ has already blazed the trail. You just need to follow after him. But that's not the problem, is it? No, we don't need more information on how to make the gospel our own, or how to grow in our walk with the Lord. If you own a Bible or attend a Bible-believing church, we don't have any excuses. Those things are not the problem. The problem is that you don't believe, or you have somehow forgotten or become distracted to the truth that is at the very core of the gospel. You don't believe that it's good news. You don't believe that it's the best news the world has ever heard. You don't believe that living for Christ is infinitely better than anything else this world has to offer you. You don't believe that dying is a gain, so what do we do instead? We live for all these other temporal things and then wonder why we are so unfulfilled. We wonder why we have lost our joy and why we can't find the rest that we are looking for. 
But all the while, we're running from, ignoring, or denying the good news that can change our whole eternity. The person of Jesus Christ is the never-ending source that the Apostle Paul has tapped into. And when Jesus said that he was the living water and those drink from him will never thirst again, Paul believed him. And guess what? He never thirsted again. And the same thing is true for you and I. But do you know what we all do? Myself included far too often. We see the offer of living life, of living water displayed right here in front of us. We go, nah, I'll just suck on some mud out of this broken cistern. We commit the same sins God speaks of through his prophet Jeremiah. He says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. We're able to recognize that we have this inward spiritual thirst that we need to satisfy. But far too often we go about trying to satisfy it in the most ridiculous of ways. We fumble around on arid ground trying to dig holes that will hold water and give us relief. But it seems as if we'll never learn from our mistakes. Man, I'm thirsty again. Come over here, dig a cistern, see if I can find any water. Call this one success. No, not holding anything. I don't know if I've tried this spot before. What about prosperity? Still no water. Hmm. Family? Occupation? Relationships? Power? Vacations? Alcohol? Religion? Still nothing. All of that effort, all of that wasted time, all of the broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. (laughs) You'd think we'd learn, but what do we do instead? We continue to try digging new holes. Eventually, we end up returning to the same ones and still trying to dig them deeper. But all of this is to no avail. They'll never hold any water. And friends, this is what those outside of Christ spend their entire lives doing. Trying one thing after another, after another, after another. And the fact they have a thirst that nothing else will satisfy should drive them to continue to look for the one who can satisfy. But church, we don't have the same luxury of trying to proclaim ignorance. We know where to go. We know that there's a source of living water that we can tap into and never thirst again. But still we try digging these broken cisterns. We throw Christ off to the side and then dying of thirst, we run to all these different sources and then blame God because our thirst still isn't quenched. It's insanity, but yet we do it again and again and again. And I already said it once this morning, but I'm going to say it again. Our problem is not from a lack of information. It's from a lack of faith. We let our unbelief, our pride, our sin get in the way. It drives us away from Christ, and then we start to thirst. Try this and try that, rather than returning to the one and only source of living water. And friends, don't let that be us this morning. Don't be that fool. Christ is right there, so drink, drink, and be satisfied. And these are amazing truths that we have before us in this morning's text. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But will you make them your own? 
When you examine your life, can you honestly say that your life is lived for Christ? When you consider your death, is your first thought that it will be a gain to you? And as we continue on in our text, we must also ask of ourselves, do our lives aid in the progress and joy of others' faith? Take another look at verses 24 through 25. Philippians chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And this concept of progress and joy in the faith is one that should sound familiar to us. It's what we studied last Sunday in verses 12 through 21. We are introduced to it in verse 12, which says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. We're able to see from last week's text that Paul's imprisonment, others' proclamation of the gospel from pretense and truth, and Paul's life or death were all able to advance. They were all able to progress the gospel. And Paul was certain that whether he lived or whether he died, he could still accomplish God's plan for his life, which was exalting the name of Christ. He could exalt Christ's name through his death by facing his execution with boldness and not shrinking back in shame when the pressure was intensified. And he was able to exalt Christ through his life by continuing on with his fruitful labor for God. Verse 22. If we're unsure of what this fruitful labor might look like, don't worry because we're given the answer right here in verses 24 and 25. I know to continue on living is more necessary for your sake. And being convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. You see, when Paul looked ahead to the potential continuance of life after prison, he didn't daydream of finally crossing off a few items on his bucket list. Now, he wasn't concerned with going on that big trip he had always planned on going or getting to watch his grandchildren grow up. The only reason that he saw for the continuance of his life was to carry on with his fruitful labor for the Lord. He was motivated to keep on living because it was more necessary for the sake of others, and he knew that he would be able to help in their progress and their joy in the faith. There were people to be discipled, There was sin that still needed to be dealt with. There were lost souls waiting to be introduced to the Savior of the world. There was still work to do, and Paul was willing to keep on keeping on. And this is what he was doing with his life. And it wasn't out of sense of obligation or because he was trying to pay back God for some debt that he felt he owed. Christ was his life. Christ changed his life, and he wanted to share this good news with all that he came in contact with. And if we remember Paul's conversion in the book of Acts, we'll remember all that changed about him, including his actual name. Saul of Tarsus had his own plans, and he thought he had his own righteousness derived from the law. But all of that would change when Christ revealed himself to Paul. If we remember from the book of Acts, this is what it says. As he, Saul, was traveling... It happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And that encounter with the living Christ changed the whole trajectory of his life. And now, years down the road from this first encounter, he's no longer persecuting Christians, but he's now the one suffering from persecution and doing it joyfully. So, what was his big change? A new career, more positive mental attitude. Did he get in contact with a really good therapist? Maybe he started to do some yoga. Nope, nope, double nope. His relationship with Jesus Christ was the big change. Pulling him away from the rules, regulations, and self-righteousness taught by the religious leaders of Judaism and drawing him near to the person of Christ Jesus. No longer navigating his life from his own compass or under his own strength, but letting Christ lead the way and trusting that Christ would be there to provide for all of his needs. The person of Jesus Christ is a source that Paul was able to find all his strength and all of his joy. And the same can be true of us as well. And the challenges laid before us in this morning's text are not ones that are difficult to understand in application. But under our own power, they're difficult to understand in motivation. And what I mean by this is that it's not hard to understand what it means to live for one specific thing. It's not a challenge to recognize that we can gain something if we give something else up. It should not be troublesome to comprehend what it looks like to aid in one's progress and joy. We can easily understand these concepts under our own mental capacities, but we'll never be able to live up to these things under our own power. We wouldn't be able to, and neither would we even want to. Without Christ in our lives, none of this is possible. On my own, Ryan Kramer wants nothing to do with living for Christ. I wouldn't view my death as a gain. I'd have no interest or concern for the progress or joy of another's faith. Without Christ's intervention in my own life, I'd be too wrapped up with myself and my own desires to care for any of that other nonsense. But friends, with Christ, all of these things which make no sense to the unbeliever get turned on their head. It's just like Jesus' parable in Matthew thirteen forty four, which says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Church, all you need is a glimpse, a taste of what Christ has to offer, and suddenly everything else fades in comparison. It would be as if you thought the brightest light source possible was from that of a flashlight. <laughs> then you step outside for the first time and feel and see the rays of the sun shining brighter and more powerful than anything you've ever imagined. And it would be impossible not to notice the vast difference between those two light sources. So stop living in the dark and take notice of the amazing offer that is available for the taking. And then grab a hold of it. Cling to Christ and never let go. Live your life for his kingdom and for his purposes. And he will empower you to fulfill the greatest of all purposes, magnifying his name. Take one last look with me at verse 26 of our text. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 26. 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Or from the ESV, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And as we think over this final verse from this morning's text, it puts on display the amazing transformative power that Christ can have in a life surrendered over to him. Once again, in the book of Acts, we can look back and see who Saul was. We can see what he was living for, and we can see how other believers viewed him. Acts chapter 9, verses 7 through 16 we can see that after Saul went blind on the road to Damascus, the men who traveled with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice but seeing no one, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was three days, and three, he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that you might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, and listen in here, church. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And this is who Paul or Saul was and how the other saints viewed him before his relationship with Christ. A man named Ananias was told in a vision from God to go to Saul, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. His response Lord, I've heard about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And just a few verses down in Acts, we again see how Paul was viewed by the believers in Jerusalem. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. And what a transformation we have here. We can clearly see who Saul was from the description given to us in Acts and we can also see who Paul became as he allowed Christ to change him from the inside out. The saints didn't want to associate with him because they were afraid of him and didn't believe that he was a disciple. And now, as we see in Philippians, he has the confidence to say, there's still work for me to do here, so I'm convinced that I'll stay and come to you again. And upon my return visit, I know that it will give you all ample, ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. I know that with Christ in me, I can magnify his name through my life and I can help others do the same. Let's make it our prayer that we can accomplish this same purpose. So, what about it, church? Is your life live for Christ? Do you view your death as a gain? Does your life aid in the progress and joy of others' faith? Does your life magnify the name of Christ?
These are the questions that we must ask from this morning's text. And while I can't answer them for you, I can point you to the one who makes all of these things possible. I can point you to the one in whom you can find rest and shelter no matter what life throws at you. His name is Jesus Christ. And once you give your life over to him, it will never be the same. So what are we waiting for? Give your life over to Christ and then start living for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your time and for our time in your word this morning, Lord. Um, And I know these are verses that we've most likely heard before. Just please help us to hear them with new ears, Lord, and just to uh, understand the depth and the richness of this passage, Lord. The high calling it is to live for you um, and that we just be able to see clearly how we're able to accomplish this, Lord, not under our own power, but only by drawing close to you, that we would take the example of Paul from this passage and other Christians in our lives, and we realize that the way they're living their life, it's possible for all of us, Lord. There's not something within them that's allowing them to do this, but it's only by drawing closer and closer to you, Lord. And may we all do that today, uh, tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives. Uh, to want more of you, to draw closer to you, and that we would just be more useful tools in your hands because of it, Lord, and that we would bring more praise and more honor to your great name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's Word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org.